0: Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Andrew Krause. I'm one of the co-founders here at InventRight. We're going to be doing a full hour of QA. I'll ramble a little bit while we wait for people to file in. I already got a bunch of questions in the chat here, so we'll make sure to hit those. Um, I'll try to answer them in order if I can. Uh, but before we get started, uh, just quick disclaimer: anything I share with you today should not be considered legal advice. Please consult your attorney if you're looking for legal advice. Also, I should emphasize that we guide people to license their products. And the beautiful thing about that when you're licensing is you're tapping into that big company's money, that big company's workforce, and that big company's existing distribution. So if they're in, already in 30,000 stores, you can be in 30,000 stores. So licensing is amazing. You don't need to raise money. don't need to hire employees. And you don't need to try to beg a retailer to carry your product because, to be honest with you, They don't really want to carry a company's product if they only have one product. They like to go with vendors that have, you know, 10, 50, 100, thousands of products sometimes. we have one of our coaches license to a company that has over 9,000 products, which is craziness, isn't it? Um, So I'm going to be answering your questions today because there's a lot of misperceptions about licensing and questions about licensing. So feel free to type your questions into the chat. So I'll just go ahead and get started. And Again, my name is Andrew Krauss. I co-founded InventRight with Stephen Key 22 years ago, and we've been coaching and mentoring inventors ever since. Um, if you go to EventWrite.com, inventright.com, invent, on the upper right-hand corner, we have a ton of free resources. You can check those out. While you're there, you could also check out our testimonial page. I'm very proud of what we have helped our students do over the years. I give them Massive amounts of credit because they did the work, but we guided them to do it. So let's jump in. Um, and, you know, if you oh, I'm echoing very badly, my two cents is saying anybody else saying I'm echoing? Sometimes it's just one person. Uh, let's see. Anybody else? Nobody else is typing. I'm echoing my two cents. So, um, OK, here. Ethan says they're fine. Hill says. Hill Dog says, I don't hear an echo. You're really blurry today, but not echoing. Okay, Bev. Um, well, you know, I had a lot to drink before I came on today, so that's why I'm blurry. Or maybe you did. I'm just I'm just kidding. Um, my video looks good. It could be the, the quality of your internet connection. It sounds like everybody's good. So um, my two cents, you just need to change something there, and you should be good. Okay, let's jump in. Arturo has the first question. As you guys know, I love doing these rapid-fire questions and answers. Um, you guys always have great questions, and you guys tell me, unless you're lying to me, you say I have great answers, uh, So, and you probably wouldn't hang out if you didn't think I did. So let's let's go for it. Arturo said, I found one product out there similar to my idea, but it's a cheap plastic version. Mine is better quality aluminum product. I understand I can improve upon an existing product. Correct. So, a couple of things to note here. This perception that every product that a company does, they're going to patent. That's ridiculous. You know, a company might have a thousand products. Are they Are going to patent every product they do? No. So, if a product isn't patented and they come up with this gadget or gizmo, you know, yeah, of course you can do an improvement because they didn't even patent the base product. And that's very, very common. Um, now, if that, if a product, if your product exactly the same, but you're just making out a better quality and that product's been out there more than a year and either them and or other people are selling it, that's public domain. Anybody can do that product now. If they didn't get a patent um, and nobody else did, you know, that's public domain, but you can always patent an improvement, right? And so, you know, you're saying that, you got it there's a cheap plastic version but yours is an aluminum i mean how much better does it make it you know does it make it a completely new type of product where it was i'm just making up stuff guys but it was like a dollar store product before but now it's a quality product or maybe that was a big problem it was too cheap or fall apart you know might be very valid but this perception that you can't license products that aren't patented is incorrect if you came to them with a new product and they sign a licensing agreement. They have to pay your royalty regardless. It doesn't have to be dependent on the patent. Now, a lot of licensing agreements, they specify it's dependent on the patent. But we get plenty of students that we guide to do deals. And the company's like, we don't care about patents. And they, they agree to that in the licensing contract. They're still going to have to pay you royalties. So, uh, Arturo, if you did a product and it's better because you're using a new material and you believe that's enough for them to be intrigued by it and want to license it, Um, Great. But if it's just the material, like let's say making it out of aluminum causes a problem and you change something about it. Well, I put a hinge over here. or I bent it this way and you get protection on that and they want to sell this product. Can you still do a licensing deal? Absolutely. You can. Now, I haven't seen your particular product to know if it makes sense. So when we talk, we're talking generically, you know, Um, Brandon said, hey, Andrew, could you please elaborate on comparative analysis as a second page of a sell sheet. What should it include any missteps to avoid? Do you have any examples? So what we teach at InventRight to our students and to the public is that when you are sending something to a company, a potential licensee, you're the licensor is the inventor. And it always confuses people early on. And the company, which is usually a brand or a manufacturer, they have they sell products in retail stores or equivalent if it's a if it's a industrial product. Um, they're called the licensees. The inventor is the licensor company that licenses and agrees to pay royalties to the licensee. Okay, so what you want to do when you're presenting your product to licensees is help them understand your product in six seconds. Very few of you that I've seen sell sheets from. Accomplish that. Our invent right students, we insist, and the coach helps our students accomplish that. They need to understand in six seconds. Sometimes you're going to include a video, which might be anywhere from five to 60 seconds max. And if it's a video, just a video, and sometimes it's a supplement to the cell sheet, sometimes it's instead of a cell sheet, you don't want to lose them in the first 10, 15 seconds so they watch the whole 60 or 30 or whatever it is. But if it's a cell sheet, you want to help them understand this product in six seconds and it's benefit because that's what you're really selling is benefits. So what that kind of looks like, it's like a, it's a one page eight and a half by 11 piece of paper, right? I'm not going to hold one up here. I got a bunch of notes on there. Um, but it's eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. It's going to be sent as a PDF, right? So it's eight and a half inches by you know, 11 and a half, whatever freaking that, that size is. And you're going to send it as a PDF, big benefit statement at the top few bullet points, picture the product, contact information at the bottom. Maybe it's a before and after. Maybe it's a storyboard. Whatever it is, it's accomplishing. I get it in six seconds. Okay. Now that's our traditional approach. That's the approach we've been teaching for 22 years. That's the approach that works. Our other co-founder, my business partner, has been talking about sometimes you can have a second. We all have always said historically over 22 years, never, ever more than one page. Now there's always exceptions. No, no, like you're not trying to raise venture vulture capital. You don't want a 20-page slide deck. I'm going to show you everything. They don't have time for that. If you send that stuff, you will not be successful with license. They don't have time for that. You want to intrigue them, you're going fishing, and you're leaving some information out. Not the benefit of the product. You're not teasing them. You want them to know what the product is. So that's done with a sell sheet. But and that's all we've ever advised, in addition to maybe a short video. Okay. now, Stephen or other co-founder has been talking about lately, you know, if you were to do a second sheet, which we have in the past, like forbade our students. They're like, oh, I got two pages. I'm like, "Nope, only one page. And we're not we're not actually changing that. We're not saying you should make a two page sell sheet because we don't believe you should. But if you did a competitive analysis on the second page and showed these other products and then had your unique point of difference on that second page here's you know five other products in this space and here's why i think mine would compete now it's not always what you think you know sometimes inventors have this there's nothing like it syndrome so if you showed five other products that were kind of somewhat similar you know some inventors would go oh that's that means my invention is not as unique no it shows there's a market and then you're showing your point of difference that would be very strong so that's what we've been talking about literally only for the last four or five months about a second competitive analysis page on here are some other players and a lot of times the marketing managers they know they're in that they're in the pet industry they're in the automotive industry or whatever industry you're selling, and they know what those products are but if you can kind of make it easy for them put it right in front of them thinking like was well, that other product and you just show it that could be beneficial And it always make it, you know, make your product look in the best possible light. And so if they don't even see the second page, because I've had people send me stuff and they're like mentioning stuff. I'm like, I didn't see that on your sales sheet. They're like second page. I'm like, well, what do we teach you? No second page. I didn't look for a second page. And guess what? Potential licensees quite often won't look for a second page either. But. So if you do a competitive analysis and you have a second page on a PDF, sell sheet, first page, competitive analysis, second page, don't count on them to see it. But I think it's a good idea. It's something that steven has been talking about for four or five months now. I think it's a good idea. Hopefully, Brandon, that um, helped you out a bit. Roaming Tortoise, who's a regular, is it possible to put too much too much or little in a ppa so it negatively affect when it is referenced for utility pad when you show the ppa to a potential licensee that you're working with i I really don't think so i i think it's i think it's possible to put too little and i do think it's possible to put too much but usually the too much usually the too much won't hurt you this is the general advice i give um One of the things you want to do when you file a PPA, and this is why our students' provisional patents are far and above better from almost all inventors out there, because they're thinking about the variations, workarounds, improvements. So, you know, you came up with an idea. You're like, this is what it is. This is what it is. And you're creative at one point when you're coming up with an idea, but you lost your creativity because you've been thinking about it for months or years. And now when you and that's great. This is what it is. Study the marketplace. This is what it is for my sell sheet, for my marketing piece to intrigue. But you need to th- about think about what else it could be when you file your PPA. And if you include a version of your product because you want to cover all the bases, you don't want people to be able to work around you, right? If you include a version that's literally only half as good as yours, you're getting obsessed. You're going too far with it. But in a version that's 70% as good, 80, 90, 100, just as good but just a different way of doing it, throw all that in your PPA. You should be doing that. But if you start including versions that are half as good, where if your product is on the shelf and your other version of it was on the shelf that you put in your PPA, no one would want to buy this other version. This one's obviously so much better in so many ways. Then you're wasting your time getting obsessed with throwing too much stuff in a provisional patent application. Um, It's good to have some nice line drawings in there that you can do yourself You can actually put pictures in there. There are no formal requirements for a provisional patent application. You could scribble with the crayon and they would accept it. Do you want to do that? Absolutely not. Um, So, you know, is there a risk on putting too little in? Yes. If you don't, and this is what most inventors do, and this is why our students are better um, than most inventors in protecting their ideas, they're including those variations, workarounds, improvements. So if you didn't do that, you would be including too little, okay? Um, so you're saying, is it going to screw you up when it's referenced for a utility patent or when you show the PPA to a potential licensee? So those are two different things. So when you have a PPA and you get interest from a company, but you haven't filed a full utility yet, and the patent office doesn't look at your PPA. So people like, oh, my PPA got granted. I'm like, it get granted every single time. If you paid your fee and you put your address there, you could scribble with on a piece of paper with crayon, they would accept it. So realize they don't look at it and that's perfectly fine, but you want to have done a good job. So when you put your stakeholder stake in the sand, this is one of my, follow my PPA that you covered as much as you possibly could. Now, if you come up with something later, you talk with the company and they want to, they're going to do a different, slightly different here or there. And you're like, Oh, I'm going to add that. Your attorney, when you file a full utility, can put that in there. It wasn't in your PPA. You can also file another PPA and put it in there. And then when you file a full utility, you can reference both PPAs. Each PPA is only 75 bucks for you to file if you're a micro entity. So, but when you show it to a company, they're a marketing manager. They're not a patent professional. You know, If it looks nice, that's a good thing. You know, It doesn't look like a kindergartner do the drawings and you need to get some nice line drawings in there. They don't need to look perfect or anything, but it kind of, so we advise our students to put some line drawings in there. They don't have to be done by a patent illustrator because that will cost you an arm and a leg, but just some nice line drawings. Some of you can do that yourself. Some of you can pay a few bucks to some folks, freelancers to do that for you. That's a nice thing to do. So you just want it to look good for the marketing manager. And they may send it to their patent attorney or what have you. So you want it to look good for that as well. But, you know, I've never... Here's the deal. Yes, if you put something in your PPA, you're protected from that date, okay? Now, if you later file a utility and you didn't put it in there earlier and you put it in later, you're protected from when you file the utility. Or if you file another provisional, you're protected from that date, okay? I've never had the only time anybody's going to ever be looking at your provisional patent is if the company you license is making a ton of money. Okay. And somebody wants to challenge it and, and it's getting crazy here. That one year is the issue. So they're only going to be looking at the patent. And if for some reason, like millions are being made, which is great. I shouldn't say it for some reason. If millions are being made and somebody's out there trying to challenge it. Cause you know, and they're gonna look at the patent. Only if that year is an issue that they came up with something in that period of time, would they ever leave a, would anybody ever look at the provisional? I've never ever seen that happen with our students. We've had students in over 65 countries. It that could, but that's one of those things like it is what it is. You file your provisional, you cover those variations, you do a kick-ass job, like most inventors don't do, and you cover the variations, work around improvements. And you can file another provisional along the way. Oh, crap. They mentioned this and I came up with an improvement. Well, I'm not ready to file a full utility because this deal ain't done yet. So I'm going to file another provisional. I'm going to take that existing provisional. as A and B in it. I'm going to file another provisional. to 75. I'm going to add C. So I'm protected from C from this date. So hopefully that was a helpful roaming tortoise. Um, if you guys want to type in your first names, you're welcome to. Um, so I don't have to read the handles. But either way is perfectly fine. Um Dev C333, hi, Andrew, I have a company who I thought was really interested, and they went silent. Very common. I, what do you mean by silent? Let's see. I followed up after 10 days. Okay, that's not very long. By leaving a phone message. Okay, nobody responds to phone messages. How long should I wait before sending an email and calling again? I mean, I would, I would typically wait uh, you know, two or three weeks before sending a follow-up email and don't expect them to listen to that voicemail. Don't worry if you left the voicemail, but follow up with them again and just just say, I'm here to help, here to answer any questions. Just want to know what your process is and when I might be able to hear back. And if you have any questions at all, I'm here to help. So it's really kind of you're reaching out, saying I'm here to help and reminding them. Whenever you do that, always forward the past email. So if you send the sales, sheet, forward the past one. So they're not digging through their emails, looking for stuff. And they can see, oh, yeah, he sent this to me two weeks ago. Oh, crap, I've been so busy. Okay, I'm going to get back to him. Say, you know, I'm going to send it to my boss, and I'll get back to you in a couple weeks or whatever. So be there to help, not pestering them, but offering help. And you're just reminding them that they need to get back to you when you do that. So that's just a basic, simple way. Very normal. It's funny when people are reaching out to make a connection via email, via the phone, via LinkedIn, um, they're okay. Like, oh, I haven't heard a response back yet. Like they had to message them a couple times on LinkedIn or then they tried email. Then they tried phone and they got there. But once they say, okay, via LinkedIn, via email, via phone, you send me the sell sheet. I think the average inventor that's new to this has unrealistic expectations. Like they sent send it to me. So when they when I send it to them, like the next day, they'll be getting back with their thoughts. That's an incorrect assumption. And there is too much impatience there. Like they're like, send it to me. They haven't looked at it yet. It doesn't mean they're not interested. It doesn't mean they are interested. It might mean that they you sent it. They got a bunch of emails come on top of that. And they didn't even freaking look at it. You know, Um, now, if they did look at it, you know, and they really intrigued by it, they're going to be emailing you back pretty soon. Very rarely do they call. They do that sometimes. Most of the time, they're going to email. So pay very close attention to your email. And don't use uh, degraded email services like Hotmail. I'm not trying to promote Google or anything like that because I'm not a fan in a lot of ways. But it, the Gmail service is pretty reliable. So I've had some people that had Hotmail addresses, and they followed up with a company. And they they said, well, I just followed up with you and see if you're interested. They're like, what are you talking about? We send you like three emails over the last three weeks. and You didn't respond to a single one. And They're like, they look in their spam. It's not there. It's nowhere. It's not a promotion spam. This was a hotmail. This happened twice. This is quite a while ago, actually. And so don't use an email address where you're subscribing to a million other things where you could lose an important email. Use an email address you're just using for inventing. And check it religiously and don't subscribe to anything on that. Check the promotions, check the spam. You don't need to have your important email coming back from a company get lost in all the crap you subscribe to. Use a dedicated email and do not use Hotmail for that. And don't even use Hotmail for, for friends and family unless you want to lose friends and family because they send you important email. and You're like, well, I didn't see that. You know, they're just going to think you're a flake. Um, so uh, let's see. So, yeah. When when people get permission to send the sell sheet, you still not get an immediate response. Don't think that you won't need to follow up one, two, three, four times after sending it. And they gave you permission. And I get people all the time saying, oh, you know, they were really apologetic. I'm sorry. I've been so slammed. And so the way of not sending those emails too often, reach out to more. Then by the time you come back around, let's say you got 30 companies You're not, like, pestering every two minutes and always offer help, okay? Um, So hopefully that kind of sets the stage. Margie said, hi, Andrew. I know Gene Quinn. Gene Quinn is the patent attorney we teamed up with to write our smart IP software, which guides our students and non-students. You can buy it separately on inventright.com to file a provisional patent application. Now with that software, I think the software is great. We worked very hard with Gene to create a good piece of software. Um, but it's, it doesn't include, if unless you're a student of ours, the coach to guide you through that as well, to brainstorm variations mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, but it does help you write the provisional. So Margie said, hi Andrew, I know Gene Quinn highly recommends using line drawings in a PBA, but if we have a very basic invention and in photos would show it well. Do you think photos are okay? Black and white, color. Things. There are no rules, Margie. Um, I've plenty of people have used photos. They could be black and white. They could be color. Sometimes black and white could have more contrast. Um, sometimes, I mean, back in the day, and I still have people do this. You can um, you can tape. You can find a glass table and tape. Like you could print a picture of something up on um, on regular paper okay you could print a picture of something up maybe it's kind of like your product maybe it's a picture of your product you know and you could tape it under a glass table shine a very bright um, light up underneath it like with a lamp and then you could put a piece of paper on top of the glass table and you could actually trace it and make some changes so i've seen people do that um people that don't even have that good at drawing skills can actually trace like let's say the base product is like a certain dog toy but yours is a little different you could trace that and then you could change the additional piece and add that, add this piece over here. Um, but you can just include pictures as well. Um, you know, when you have somebody that's not trained in understanding provisional patents and things, like a marketing manager, if they see line drawings, they're like, they don't know the difference between that and a regular patent drawings. That's why it's kind of nice to do line drawings. They kind of look like patent drawings, right? Although there's no formal requirements. So if you have patent drawings in a full utility patent they need to be done just a certain way. They won't accept them, but in a PPA, you can do whatever. You could throw pictures in there, color, black and white, crayon sketches. Don't do that. Um, you could make your own line drawings. Like I said, there are some people that will use software and it will turn it into a line drawing and then they erase around it. You know, that can look good, not look good. Um, you can also show some images to some people and you could pay them a few bucks. There's, you can throw a rock and hit an artist these days to do some line drawings for you, Um So, uh, so yeah, you can legally put black and white or color photos in there. And, you know, I haven't really found it. Sorry, my stupid watch is talking. I haven't really found it to be an issue. Um, I haven't seen like a company go, Oh, your PPA looks amateur. Like we're not going to do a deal with you." you. No, you know, um, if it's written up, well, and you some nice pictures in there. That is perfectly fine as well. But it creates an extra aura of professionalism with the line drawings. But to me, if you're going to do a good sell sheet or do a PPA with line drawings or not, I'd say don't worry about the line drawings or not. Throw some pictures in there. Nobody's even going to want to look at the stupid PPA if you didn't intrigue them with your sell sheet, with your marketing piece on the benefits of the product. So this, this getting too obsessed about provisional patents. People way overemphasize their importance. At the same time, I also told you guys earlier, most people, most inventors do a piss poor job of writing their provisional. Our students do a kick ass job. The one major thing, just because we tell you do the variations, workarounds, improvements. And if you get out of your head a little bit and you're talking to a coach and they're giving you examples, you're like, oh, okay, I could do that. You know, but you can also do that on your on your own. Um, Let's see. Tony says Mondays are my most favorite time of the week. Thank you so much for giving us your time so freely. You are the man. Thank you, Tony. That was nice of you to say that. Um, and then Tony said, "Is Smart IP a paper use software? Or do we buy the software?" So um, it's it's not. So the the one on our site is ninety nine bucks, and that is a one time use. So you can file one provisional patent with it. Now, when our students join and they're with us for six months of coaching, six months of alumni membership, that entire year they get access to use Smart AP. And to be honest, once you use it a couple times, um, you probably don't need it anymore. You get the general gist of how to file a provisional pad. Um, but the, the SMART IP is for non-students, the one-time use, 99 bucks. And then if you're a student of ours, coaching student, you get it to use it during your entire membership. But when you're not a member anymore, it's, you, it's not like you keep the software. But you don't you won't really need it anymore at that point if you're a student of ours. You'll be like, oh, I get it. I filed to you with this. I understand the gist of it. You're going to kind of get it. Um, let's see. You know, and that's a big part of everything we do. Everything we do, we're empowering you. So at some point you can say, I get it, guys. I don't need you anymore. But you got to get that real life experience, filing a provisional, making a sell sheet. Even if a graphic designer is making it, you still need to come up with the marketing with your coach, uh, making your list of companies, reaching out on the phone, email, and and, and LinkedIn, um, doing this stuff. And there's lots of little, like you guys have asked a bunch of little questions that are, I'm I'm not saying this right, but are unimportant. You know, you asked a bunch of questions that I answered, and I said, I've never seen that be an issue. So I gave the answer because it's worrying you. I need to give you the answer. But also it's like, oh, Andrew gave me some perspective. Like he's never seen that be an issue. He's never seen, for example, anybody come back and have to reference their provisional. So if you didn't do your provisional right, but you did your full utility, only if there's that one year and there's some big debate about the patent and what it protects, would you ever look at that? And he's telling me he's never seen that with students in 65 countries over two decades. He's never seen any of that ever happen. So I was getting obsessed over that. Okay, I still got to do a good job. I'm going to take my his advice and do the variations, work around improvements. I'm not going to be overly worried about if this provisional isn't perfect because the, the attorney is going to file a full utility and get all that important stuff in there. So that's an example of... Um, knowing what is important and what isn't important, you know? And when you're actually, when our students are actually working on their projects, they it really sinks in because it's their own project. Like you guys are asking kind of generic questions because we can't disclose your products, nor should you disclose your products publicly here. Um, but when you're working with your coach, your coach is like, no, nah, no, nah, I think you find more companies here. I think you this say you respond to that email and sort of thing, you know? So um, it's, it's getting help within the real world, you know, not theoretical uh, questions. And and you will ask questions then, too. And the coach will be like, yeah, that's not a problem. But this is a problem. Let's do this right. You know, so it gives you perspective. It's experiential learning is what I call it. Um, let's see what else we got here. Uh, uh, Ailence says, I have an idea for a new kind of vape. Uh, A lot of people working on that sort of thing. My issue is all the companies I find are based in China China with Chinese employees. I don't imagine they do open innovation should I completely drop this idea. Um, I don't know if you're right about that. So you don't license to manufacturers. I'm going to use certain words to explain this. You don't license to a contract manufacturer. So um, there's all sorts of, uh, you know, it's kind of changed over the years. For instance, on Amazon, there's these Chinese companies. And I don't know if you guys know this, but Amazon has had 24-7 training to train people and companies in China to dump all this crap on our market. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, they train them on how to do this. And that's and we know this because you look at Amazon posting is it's all this terrible Chinglish and it's like, oh my God, why didn't they pay somebody like two minutes to proofread this? But They just didn't bother. Um, so, you know, is that a real are those same guys that are the Chinese companies that are dumping stuff on Amazon? Are they getting distribution in Bed Bath and Beyond or Walmart or Target? No, they're probably they're probably not. Um, but they are selling direct to customers on websites like <clears throat> Amazon and eBay. And that wasn't the case in the past. In the past, most of the stuff that was coming from China, it would be Americans that would import something and they'd slap their name on it and then they just sell it on Amazon, okay? A lot of these big companies that you're licensing to are more than that. Yeah, they might be big on Amazon, but they also got brick and mortar and they got other they got multiple distribution channels, right? Um, so, you know, I'll give you an example for phone cases, okay? Because I think vapes and phone cases have some similarities. So there's some really big companies that do phone cases. I remember the gentleman, uh, I ran an inventor's group for 14 years. I've been doing EventRite for 22. And I met the, the president of Spec. Spec is a phone case company. They're huge now. Back in the day, he spoke to my little inventor's group with like 80 people back in the day. And he was just kind of getting started. So they're a brand um, and they're very well known. And Belkin is a brand and Otterbox is a brand. These are all brands. And yet, and they're all getting their crap made in China too, but they're an American brand or maybe some of them aren't. I don't know, but they're an American brand. Those are the companies you want to license to. You don't want to license to just some Chinese company that's making stuff and dumping on the market. There's a ton of those on Amazon selling phone cases and probably vapes too. OK, I think we're realizing now that the vapes have some health issues, but maybe some people would argue that. But um, I think edible is probably safer. But who knows? Um, so, you know, the Chinese companies, you know, are you going to license to a Chinese company? No. Now, there was an exception, I remember, where we had uh, this French Canadian who was actually living in the Yukon, which is the other part of, of, of Canada. And um, he licensed a line of camping products to a Chinese company. Now, this Chinese company wasn't just one that dumped crap on Amazon and made postings with terrible Chinglish. They had distribution in all sorts of retailers. So that's fine. That's a legitimate company to license to because they have distribution at big box stores and other retailers. And I remember an Israeli student he licensed an entirely new toilet. I'm not kidding, guys. A toilet to a Chinese company. Now, this Chinese company was selling toilets at getting Home Depot or Lowe's. So they're qualified. But there's still – you don't see that that much still to this day in the brick and mortar. You see it on Amazon, but you don't see it as much in the brick and mortar. That's still changing. So um, so lens has a vape, Should I Bother – the answer is if there are, which there are, I know there are, if there are, va- I mean, I had a, my wife had a, one of her, her girlfriend's husband who I met, I didn't really know him and I met him and he was talking about, he had a vape company. He had a unique, different type of vape. He was an America. Did he get his stuff made in China? Yeah, but he was an American company, American funded, and he was manufacturing and he raised money too from uh, angel investors to raise, to manufacture and sell this vape. Those are the guys you license to and bigger ones. Not this is just an individual guy, a small company and others might be bigger. So um, look at where they're based. And if you see they're an American company or a Canadian company, European company, you don't care they're getting it made in China. I mean, I'm not saying you don't care. I'm just saying a lot of people are to keep costs down still. I think that's going to change. We'll see how it plays out over the next, you know, three, four five years. A lot of interesting stuff going on in China. Um, but as of right now, it's still a lot of stuff is getting made over there. Um, so it's a it's like a brand, right? So with Spec, with Belkin, with OtterBox, those are brands of cell phones. But if you go on Amazon, you'll see you'll see probably five, six thousand companies that are generic selling phone cases because a lot of people don't care about that. Now, I do think there are people that care about vapes. If you go to a head shop, I guarantee you there's branded vapes in there. Now, do they also have some crap they bought from China directly that doesn't have a brand behind it, doesn't stand behind it, quality or whatever? Yeah, they might have some of that too, of course. But I'm not convinced. I haven't studied that That all the companies out there are Chinese companies. You know, I don't, I'm not convinced of that. But yeah, if they're in China, they don't have distribution other than Amazon, probably not a good one to license to. They don't really restrict intellectual property. But I would be shocked if that was the case. So- um aliens, I wouldn't kick it to the curb. If there's legitimate vape companies, which there are, I'll try to license to them, definitely, without a doubt. Um My2 cents says, Deeper into Arturo's question. What was Arturo's question? My my memory is very short here. Arturo uh he found a product that was similar to his, but he has a version that's an aluminum and it wants to improve upon the product. So um My Two cents says deeper into Arturo's question is the material. A product is made of part of the patent. If I copy a plastic shoehorn exactly, but make it out of stainless steel, am I fridging on their patent? So, guys, patents aren't protecting. I, this is why I like to explain it in layman's terms. Patent attorneys would go, ah, oh, it's a weird way to explain it. But it's the way that I've noticed that people understand. So you're not patenting the invention. I like to say that. Okay, put that in, get that in your, your head. I'm not patenting my invention. I'm patenting pieces of it. So I'm preventing people from doing it a certain way. To patent the entire invention, any variation, all sorts of all over the place, that would be extremely broad protection. And rarely are you going to get that. So most of the time, you're not patenting the invention. You're patenting this hinge. And hey, without that hinge, this thing wouldn't work very well. Or, you know, um, to, to go to my two cents and Arturo's question, Sometimes it's a material, but in a provisional patent, you don't want to limit yourself to certain material. Because you could say you want to have like limiting words. You can have limiting words. That's okay. Then before you finish up that sentence, you want to broaden it out. This is not legal advice, guys. So it's just a lesson here. Um, So it could be this, uh, this material, this material, this material. And then you do the patent attorney weasel words. That's what I like to call it. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) This material, this material, this material but not limited to these materials, you know, you know, so it could be out of any material. So, and if, if, if having it out of aluminum or this or that really created additional functionality, but just saying it's a shoehorn exact same design out of aluminum, if that, if making it out of aluminum provided easier slipping or whatever, but most shoehorns to use that example, They aren't, that's not, shoehorn's been around forever. I'm not, I know you guys aren't talking about the shoehorn, but that's been around forever. So there's tons of stuff that's not patented, not protected because it's become public domain, but you can patent your improvements. The question is, if I change this material, is that enough to patent? It depends. It's a really annoying patent attorney question. Like you'd have to make a case that this material created all this cool additional functionality and utility. And if it did, yes, maybe you know, but what's more important than what's patentable, screw the patentability, which is making, is it marketable? Does it offer an intriguing enough reason for that inventor to buy this product with yours out of shoe, let's just say a shoehorn, shoehorn out of aluminum instead of plastic? Does it really work? You know, patenting crap that isn't marketable is a waste of time. Is the product more marketable, and does it have a clear benefit? And then you look at the the details of how you're delivering that benefit, and you're trying to protect those pieces. You could protect other pieces that are irrelevant. What's the point? You know. So hopefully that's helpful. Um, If so, you know, when you say my two cents, am I infringing on their patent? What's in their patent? What are the claims? Are they, are they protecting the shape of it? Are they protecting that it's just out of plastic? You know, what are they protecting in their patent? You can't possibly say yes, that's violating their patent or not without actually looking at it and reading it, you know, and I I understand that. So, but these are great questions, guys. Um, Tony says, if a company rep says no, they don't take outside submissions. Is it a bad idea to keep looking for a rep who says it's okay to send him or her our sell sheet? Um, you know, within the same company. So I think that's what he's saying. Uh, I have seen that happen where you talk to one person in the company and they're like, no, we don't accept outside ideas. And then you can talk to another and they're like, yeah, I'll take a look at it. So some companies like you can tell all the attorneys got to them. And I wouldn't say this is very common at all, where they all give you this very um, this is very unusual, very concise answer. It's like, oh, damn, they read him the riot act any inventor wants to send an idea you got to tell them no and you're going to tell them no this way very rare you don't normally see that now the only place where it might backfire on you you send it to sally no we don't receive outside ideas you went to a marketing manager and they sent it there and then it got back to sally and sally's like this a-hole you know i already told him no and now he's trying to go around me and go over here well you know that that can bite you in the butt a little bit but um it depends on who you talk to if you talk to the gatekeeper I wouldn't worry about that. They're the gatekeeper, right? And then you then you go, well, you know, I don't know if they know what they're talking about. You really can't trust gatekeepers when they say yay or nay to that, to be honest with you. So then you reach out to a marketing manager on LinkedIn. They're like, oh, sounds intriguing. <clears throat> you just say, it's a good match for their product line or you tease them a little bit <coughs> with the product. I have a new cupcake tin that, you know, instantly releases the cupcakes and never sticks or whatever. And would you be open to look at it? Eh, let's take a look at it, you know? So, but if it's two marketing managers, you know it might bite you in the butt, and it might be a company. And some of you, when you're new to this, you might might be thinking like this: Maybe you want to send them more ideas. So now you pissed off Sally, and then Sally told Bob, which is the second one you sent it to. Yeah, it doesn't sound like you want to listen to me. It's like, come on, he's wasting our time. Uh, so that could happen, but I've also seen it work out in a positive way. You know, I've seen like, but you know, if it's a pretty high level manager, you know, knows usually no um you know but sometimes you're just going fishing like think about it if you're just if you're just asking if they're open to outside ideas and somebody says no and then you ask another person if they're open and they say no nobody's going to get mad at you it's more like when you send this when you sent it would be more here's okay let's define this more if you got permission you sent a sell sheet and that marketing manager said no and then you went to another marketing manager and then they brought it into a meeting and they came back to sally Bob brought it back. Okay, that's going to piss them off. But asking if they're open to outside ideas, multiple people, I see no harm in that. So that's, I just, sorry, I had a brain fart and I'm just differentiating those two. Okay. If if they said, yes, send it to me, they looked at it and they said no to the product. They actually said no to the actual product. You shouldn't be sending it to multiple other people in the company because they'll probably get back that same person. And then you might not be able to send more products to that company because they're going to red flag it. But if it's just, are you open to outside ideas and you ask others? Yeah, I don't see any harm in that at all. So sorry I took the long way around to get there. Um, let's see. Uh, Mick, Mick Dennett, Uh Hey, Andrew, uh, I have an ideas in the kitchen area, an item that doesn't exist, and one in the medical area, an item that doesn't exist. Which would be the best to pursue first? Without a doubt, to get your feet wet would be kitchen. They're very open. They're always looking for new ideas. I would definitely start with kitchen. Medical is tough. I would work on it, but it would be so cool to get the experience with the kitchen. And when you're getting beat up a little bit more with the medical, which you will, and it'll just take longer. It's harder to get to people. Um, You're going to have more experience, and you're just going to weather it a little bit better. Definitely the kitchen first, and then after that, do the medical um we had a student of ours do a insane medical deal i'm not into the get rich quick and the millions and stuff but it was in that price range um but it's they're harder deals to do kitchen's like easy get your experience there and then go into medical and and then you get experience with both right and after a while you're like oh, i love the the treasure chest aspect because medical can be, mean so much money but wow, kitchen's just so easy and fun and they're very approachable and getting really better feedback and stuff. And some of those could be big hits too. So um, get a feel for it, what you like. It's nice to work in one, two, three categories and then commit to maybe one or two. Because once, and I've said this a million times before, but it's always good to note, let's say you work on a kitchen product and you reach out to 30 companies, but you work on another kitchen product, you're going to look at those 30 you sent to and go, you know, 20 of those 30 would be good for my next one. Great. You got their freaking email. You got their contact info. Just send it. You know, that's great. So once you get in an industry, you can reutilize those relationships and just hit them over and over with new products. So, But let's say you work on a kitchen product. You're like, okay, I'm going to go to medical now. And that's fine. You go to medical. You're going to need to create some of those relationships. And the way you create a relationship is just send your first product. So easy. It's great. So whenever you work on a project, you didn't get as much traction, you licensed it or you didn't license it, or you're going to go back and try to license it again because you know it makes sense. Um, you always won because you made relationships with the ones that said no. And when they said no, it means you can send another product because they were okay with looking at it in the first place. You don't even have to ask. Sometimes it's okay to ask. But so, um, yeah, hopefully that's helpful. Uh, let's see. Uh, Paul said, hi, Andrew, if a contract says we'll get paid for all new versions of a product, do we still need to own improvements? Um, Isn't that essentially what that is? So, um, So there's two different things you could differentiate. I was helping somebody with a contract today. You can say that you own all improvements to this product, right? This is a widget. This is the widget and you own all improvements to this. So then the question is, If you own the improvements, do they need to get permission to sell those improvements? Or can they automatically sell those improvements and get the same royalty under the same contract? And that all depends on how you write it up. Um, So, yes, you need to own all improvements. You know, um, yeah, you want to specify that you own improvements and that you get paid for those. And either you need to give permission to sell those or they automatically get the rights for that or you define it. Like within this realm, you would automatically own the improvements and you would pay me the same royalty. That's pretty common. Or you need permission from me on any improvements to sell them. Now, we're not talking about a color or a slight change. We're talking about improvements, you know, significant improvements. Johnny said, hey, uh, uh, what or should you have done? Should I have done my invention idea to prepare for if I was to be a member at InventRight. Um, you know, I, I think the InventRight coaches keep get people on track so much. It's like you could kind of be all over the place and their job is to get you, get you wrangled and get you focused, you know, and then you spend two to six hours a week staying really focused. So I don't think you need to have gotten a bunch of stuff together. Now, if you want to, you could give it your best stab at your list of companies. Most people don't really know how to do that. Um, you could give it, You're just something really crude on what you think the marketing should be. Or, you know, with a benefit statement, a few bullet points, go look at all the other products in this space. Go, this is mine. Mine does this better, you know, and be knowledgeable about the other products in this space. You don't need to have any of that stuff though. you could just join. The coach is going to guide you to do that. If you got some of it done, they're like, oh, great, you know, and they can guide you from there. So when we coach people, we start you off with wherever you are. So you could be super advanced, you could be super rudimentary, it doesn't matter. We start you off with wherever you are. Some people go, well, I've, I've done that and that and that. I'm like, great, we'll, we'll just start you off at a higher level. You'll get even more higher level stuff. Other people are like, I'm just starting out. I'm like, great, we'll start you there. So it's completely customized to you. Sometimes people say, Andrew, I've done a cell sheet, I've done a patent, And can you give me a discount? I'm like, no, we're still helping you for half a year. And we're just helping you with more higher level stuff. Maybe we should charge you more. I don't say that, but I joke. But um, so it's not going to be cheaper because you've done stuff. And, you know, a coach will always tell you if you did it right. They'll say, wow, you rocked it with this. They'll say, this is half there, but this is off here. You're not going to sign up to get somebody to guide you to sugarcoat things and not tell you the truth. You know, they're always going to tell you the truth. So that's that's just how we are. Um, let's see. So, yeah, you don't really need to prepare, Johnny, but if you want to do some of those things, so be things to prepare before you sign up. Uh, da-da-da. let's see. Okay. Uh, hi, this is J Bell. Uh, hi, Andrew. I'm interested in coaching, but wondering how many current event rate students are addressing questions to you Rather than their coaches, thank you um, you know it's it's funny um, sometimes I get Invent Right students coming on our live stream that I do on Mondays or the one with Steven and myself, and they just kind of like to stay connected um, but that is a world of difference when and that's not a negative thing when a coach knows your product and is deep into it with you, that advice is better than anything. I do get people like I do get, sometimes I get students, this is a good story that's going to get at your core concept. Like, oh, why are they on with, why are they coming on here, Andrew? This is a public thing that's for the public if if they're not getting the answer from their coach. And you need to ask them, but a lot of them, they just like hearing from Stephen and myself as well. That's why we do a co-founder call once a month with all our students. Um, and we do different things like that. But um, what, was I, what was I getting to? I get students sometimes that, argue with their coach. This isn't very often, but I get it once in a while. And the coach's like, no, we need to do it this way because this is this. And they're like, but Andrew and Steve said on a video, and like, well, Andrew and Steve doesn't know your particular product, and not everything they say applies to 100% 100 of the time. But almost every single time, the student needs to talk to me because I said something on a YouTube show, and they don't trust that the coach is saying the right thing. I get on with them, and I'm like, yeah, I agree with your coach 100% like 99% of the time, like, yes, the reason they gave that it's an exception to the rule, they are absolutely 100% right. So our coaches absolutely rock. They're fantastic. That doesn't happen very often, by the way, but I get it sometimes. And if they're doubting their coach, you know, they want to get on with me, I'll verify it. And then they're probably not gonna be doubting much more anymore. But um, but we have a negotiation coach, we have a head coach, Terry Omara. Myself and Steve, we always jump on for things that we're needed for. But usually the coach and our head coach, our negotiation coach, Paul, can handle it just fine. Um, But, yeah, I I think sometimes we get students on here that like to to jump on and just ask a few questions, stay connected, keep in the mindset. It's a little different than one-on-one coaching, you know. Um, Richard said, let me make sure I lost my track here. Okay. Richard said, I saw a product on Amazon that would work for my product and want to know if I should call a product seller or the people that manufactured it. So he said it would work for his project. So I don't know what that means. I don't know if it means like it would be a part of his product. Like, what do you need to know? Like a lot of times you're going to look at similar products and go, oh, great. Not only does this product verify they can make that, but it's also selling for $24.95. And my product's going to add this And it's going to add a couple bucks, but not much. And when a company says, how do we make it? You're going to point and reference those products. So, you know, Richard's question is, should I call the seller or the people that manufactured it? I have no freaking idea, Richard. I don't know why you would want to, but if if I knew what the product was, then maybe I'd understand, but I don't think that's necessary. I can't think of many scenarios where that would be necessary. Um, And, if again if a coach was guiding you and they understood it they could guide you you know but they got to understand your product and that's the big difference between a chat like this and a coach guiding you one-on-one knowing your product giving you specifics so i can't say i have no idea i don't think you would call somebody on amazon that is selling a similar product i need to know why like what's your motivation and all that i i can't know without seeing it um but good question. uh hill dog said hey andrew if you have several marketing people at a company on linkedin do you reach out to all of them if some how do you choose which one I-, I think it's okay to reach out to multiple once you have somebody that responds and says yes send me something then you should be loyal to that person as long as they're reviewing something but to reach out to multiple it should actually be a key part of your approach um how do you choose one usually it's marketing managers you might choose several or maybe even a, sale, a regional sales manager or something might be good, too, because they'll always talk to people. Um, Gary said, should we feel free to share our idea on and share media of the invention after the provisional or should we get NDAs? OK, to share our idea and share media of the invention. OK, so he's talking about sharing to a potential licensee, to a manufacturer privately. Um I can't tell you what you should or shouldn't do, Gary, but I can tell you what we teach our students. When you file a provisional patent application, it's not a patent, it's a placeholder in the sand where you're protected from the state if you later file a utility and reference it. So that's what most of our students do. <coughs> Asking the sign, and I'm not going to get into the old NDA thing because we, we get to ask that every single time, a couple times. But if you ask all the companies to sign your NDA, you're going to beat your head bloody. They won't do it. And again, the basics of that, what if they got 200 NDIs from inventors a month? They need to have a full-time legal staff to review them. So your PPA, that's your protection. Um, if they want you to sign theirs, just say yes, read it, make sure you're okay with it, and then sign it, but it's usually not protecting you. Don't put that stupid NDA between you and the company. You filed your provisional patent. You're creating a paper trail on what you protected and when and what you're showing to them. So I've never had one of our students get knocked off by a potential licensee. It'll happen one day, but it hasn't happened yet. 22 years. Um, it'll happen one day. But so people are too worried about that. And also NDAs don't protect you as much as you think they do. They really don't. Um, okay. Uh, CL said I'm an event right member. Great. I have, I don't know if they're CL's uh, academy or premium member one-on-one coaching. I have my hit list and started making calls. Great. But none of the phone numbers I have, connect to a gatekeeper, what should I do to get the correct numbers? Well, first of all, you always want the corporate number. And I don't know if you're an academy student or... uh, So when you reach out, you should be reaching out on LinkedIn. I love old school. I love calling the phone and via email. You should be doing all three. Um, But if you want to start with the phone, I, I love that. So the phone numbers I have connect to... But none of the phone numbers I have connect to a gatekeeper... Yeah, they do. Um, So, you know, if you call the main 800 number, you're going to get some customer service person. And they say, can you connect me to the corporate number? Oh, sir, what product can I help you with? Is there blenders? Is it this? Is it that? And you're like, no, no, I need the corporate number. So just you can call and ask for the corporate number at the main consumer line. But that's just painful. You can just look it up. You just Google it. You know, XYZ's company corporate website you know, or corporate phone number too, and find that corporate number and you will find a gatekeeper that you can talk to. Um, Sometimes you can use a combination of techniques we teach on LinkedIn and the phone. Like maybe they're not reaching back out to you on LinkedIn, but you get the name of a couple and you call and you ask for that person, you know, by name. Because the gatekeepers love it when you ask for people by name. So there's all sorts of different techniques you can use. Um, But you need the corporate number seal. That's what you need. Um, so you need to find their corporate website and you find a corporate number and you can call that number and and, and, and talk to somebody. And maybe that maybe sometimes you ask for an email. Sometimes you ask, you know, they'll put you through their voicemail. If you get lucky, they'll connect you to the person live. That doesn't happen very often these days, you know, at all. Um, uh, Bev said, follow up. The company called me after seeing my sell sheet expressed a lot of interest and said they would call me after their big meeting 10 days ago. Okay, I won't fret. I'll just pitch to others. So if they had the big meeting 10 days ago, follow up. How did the meeting go? Did you have any questions? Do you have any concerns? I'm here to help. So that's great, though. Um, That's what you want to do. Uh, Let's see. No, Nowhere. Is there a handle? Hey Andrew, I'm currently trying to finalize and market a patent in the marijuana industry. Any advice on non-conventional industries? Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, there's two types of main patents. There is a utility patent, which is the way something functions and the utility of it. And there's a design patent, the way something looks. Now, There's this other weird patent that we never talk about, and they're called plant patents. So if you had a new strain of marijuana or something like that, you could get a plant patent. But maybe he just has a physical product like a new bong or a new vape or a new this or a new that. And in that case, um, I don't really have any other advice. It would just be a patent on the functionality and utility of that product. And you'd file a PPA most likely. But without knowing the exact product, I can't say for sure. But um, we've had people work on uh, uh, marijuana-related stuff for forever when it was just me- me- medical marijuana. But our students are doing everything under the sun, from toys to automotive to garden to kitchen to industrial and commercial products. It's all over the map. So licensing is licensing. doesn't matter if it's marijuana or anything else. Um, I don't have any particular – I can't give you advice on – your particular product or your patent is what you wanted because I don't know what your product is. How could I give you advice? Uh, but I wouldn't say that there's any like patents must do's for a marijuana product as opposed to a kitchen product. There's no differences. I mean, there are differences in the product of course, but it all is dependent on the product specifically. Um, okay. uh, we're going to do a last one here from Will, Um, Hey, Andrew, I have a a product idea that snowballed into a whole range of product ideas. Yeah, that happens sometimes. And I've developed a whole line of products. How do you pitch the whole product line to a company? You know, you can really scare them away if you do that. Um, Quite often, it's a good idea to show one and then get permission. Hey, I got a whole line. Maybe you show one and you tease them a bit and you say, I got actually a whole line. If you're not interested in this particular version, I got more. That would probably be the best thing to do. Because um, like I said, they have six seconds to look at your stuff. So when you're showing a whole line, you, you're probably showing them too much stuff. We get companies, CEOs, market managers come on with their Bridge in the Gap meetings and they talk to our students, actual companies. And they they will say, like, I would feel a little overwhelmed if you did that. Please don't do that. Um, so I would pitch one and then tease them that you've got a line with other other that products that would fit into this line, but I probably wouldn't show them an entire line. I'm not saying there might not be an exception where that might make sense, but probably not. They just don't have time for it. Everybody's too busy. But once you do that and they're like, yeah, I'll take a look, you know, be ready to send them something. Um, so McDenna, thank you for responding to my question. Your help's invaluable. Um uh, Jay Root said, uh, Hey, Andrew, what's the best way to get feedback on a sell sheet from InventRight? Um, I would sign up for our Kickstarter or evaluation program. We have a program where it's just a 90 minute call and it's either with our head coach, Terry O'Mara. Usually it's with him. Sometimes it's with um, our coach Paul uh, who's amazing. So that would be a great way to get uh, feedback on that and a whole bunch of other things. And those are cool. It's like a one-time, like, 90-minute thing. and You can get a ton of questions answered. I never have people that come out of that. um, About half of them sign up for the whole program. The other half don't. But when I interview people that didn't, they're like, oh, it was amazing. You know, I I still benefited from it. So, um, tremendously. So, that would be, if you go on our site, click on services, I think it's on the right side menu. And it's like evaluation slash um, kind of kickstart kind of deal. Um, so that J root, that would be the best way to get some feedback. Uh, D van says, so you use the same wording from the first PPA to include the improvements in the second PPA. Usually when people file a PPA and has a and B in it, and they're talking to a company and they're, he's like, well, we, we don't like this. And you you come, oh, I got a solution for that. And you, before you show it to them, you, you take that PPA that a and B in it, and you just add C. So the first one has A and B. The second one, same exact PPA, adding C. If you just take the same provisional, you add to it, and you file it again, and then you show it to the company. So you can do that. Um, so that, that explains that. Um, huh. uh, Richard, thank you. Uh, Hayden, uh, thank you for the kind words. Well, you're in Belgium. That's cool. Uh, Dolly, it's late for you, isn't it? She's like, I don't know what time it is for you, man. It's late. It's like uh, 3 o'clock in the morning. Uh, uh, Dolly said, Terry is awesome. Had a 90-minute call with him last Friday. There you go. So Dolly did it. Dolly did the 90-minute session with Terry. She said it was great. So there you go. Um, If you guys could do me a favor um, and you guys could subscribe down below and click on the notification button. It doesn't, nothing happens. It's not like you start getting spam or something because you subscribe, but we're looking to get to 80,000 subscribers from 60,000. So if you could help us do that, that would be the way for you to say thank you to me for spending a whole hour answering your questions for free. You can also watch more of our YouTube videos, like, interact, um, ask questions under some of the videos. Um, And then don't hesitate to check out inventright.com with our free resources. In the upper right-hand corner, if you go to inventright.com, on free resources. You can check those out. I'm burnt. I'm going to I'm gonna head on out. I've been talking for an hour and five minutes. Uh, so I wish you guys much success. Hope to see you next Monday. Love to have you guys as a student. If you're interested, um, you can go to inventright.com. Click on Contact Us and book to talk to Sylvia or Dana. They're both super friendly. Even if you're not ready yet, you could talk to them now. Just say, hey, I'm just kind of investigating. And they'll be totally cool with that. So uh, take care, everybody, and keep inventing. See you guys right